Well, we're about to get started with the Arantia Radio podcast. As a reminder, if you have any questions about this podcast, which is brought to you in part by Anchor.fm, please email us at UrantiaBookRadio at gmail.com. If you have a question about the book or a topic you'd like us to discuss on this Anchor.fm podcast, again, the email is UrantiaBookRadio at gmail.com. Thanks again to Anchor.fm. Now let's get underway with our podcast about the Urantia book. Hey, I'm back. It's the Urantia Radio podcast. I want you to check out the new uh, trailer I created. I think if you go to the app, either app, there's a preview button. It's sort of like a show promo, and I wrote up a little ditty. So if you want to check it out, it's I think it's kind of cool. I hope you like it. I want to, you know, it takes so much of my time thinking about how I want to make this podcast work because, man, it's so exciting that I get to talk about the fifth epical revelation as much as I want to. I mean, it's some unbelievable that things worked out the way they did because I found the Urantia book about the same time that I got into communications. And uh, for, for a long time, they were two parallel lines moving in the same direction through the course of my life. And um, it wasn't until podcasting a couple of years ago, and I had known about podcasting for a long time because my friends and I used to, when we were in high school, we would make cassettes. We didn't like to write, so we would just record our thoughts and we would record our letters and we would send them in the mail on a cassette. And and I think that's really what a podcast is. A podcast is me uh, sharing my thoughts with you, and then you can listen to them, and you're more than welcome to respond. Uh, I tell people all the time, if you want to send me something, or if you have a piece of music, or uh, if you've got something you want to say, or if you've got a question, you can email, you can send me whatever you want to. It is a it is a global experiment, and uh, and so the, the there there has been a little bit of an intersection between what I learned in my communications profession and what I'm doing now in the podcast, and and the opportunity that I had to interview Mo Siegel, the foundation president, the Urantia Foundation president, was a pretty big deal for me. I had known about Mo. For many, many years, I used to get all the stuff that I could get back in the 80s and the 90s from the foundation and from various Urantia book organizations. And he has always been a big giant in the, I don't want to say a movement, because the Urantia book is hardly a movement in the traditional sense of the word. It's more like a seeding process than a, than a, a movement. It isn't a movement yet, uh, not the kind of movement we need. But uh, nevertheless, Mo was a big part of it. Others that were also, George Michel Dupont, I think, has been tremendously a big part. There's so many people, uh, Marilyn Kuliecki. Uh, there's so many names of people who, who've, who've dedicated their lives to this book. And count me on that list because uh, all throughout my, my career, I've always tried to figure out a way to use my skills to incorporate the Arantia book because it's a big deal. It saddens me that so many people that I know and love can't open up a book. Like the other day, uh, someone very near and dear to me was going through some problems 
And I wanted so badly to say, look, all of your problems that you're complaining about right now would go away if you had the right philosophy. If you had, Maybe that sounds condescending, maybe not. But for me, many of the, the daily trivialities, not all of them, but many of them are not as important to me when you have the long view, the long view picture. And you get a long view picture by studying the Arantia book. And in fact, I'm going to get into something kind of cool today that has to do with a group of people or personalities that are absolutely fascinating to me. And uh, and I and I know you're probably aware of it if you've been a longtime reader of the Arantia book. But for those people who may not be familiar or maybe haven't gotten to that section yet, let me sh- let me share with you. Let me introduce you to a new kind of personality called the Brilliant Evening Star. What is a Brilliant Evening Star? It sounds like a, a funny name, right? But it's actually a, a, it's a title more than anything. It's what the Arantia book chose to title this group of, of spirit personalities who perform. They, it is their occupation. It is more of an occupation than a designation. A brilliant evening star uh, is talked about a lot in the Arantia book. If you do a Google search or or even a search in the Arantia book from truthbook.com and just go down through the chronology of how the brilliant evening uh, stars are described and you'll find that they are assistants to Gabriel. And in the Bible, they are the angels of the Lord. And they serve at the pleasure of the bright and morning star who is Gabriel, who represents the Son of God, the second person of Trinity in our local universe. And they are explained in the brief narrative. Let me read it to you. These brilliant creatures were planned by the Melchizedeks and were then brought into being by the Creator Son and the Creative Spirit. They serve in many capacities, but chiefly as liaison officers of Gabriel, the local universe chief executive. One or more of these functions beings function as his representatives at the, at the capital of every constellation and system in, in Nebadon. So we have a capital, and that capital is called Jerusalem. So there is, there is a bright, uh, a, a brilliant evening star there, and there is a brilliant evening star represented, all representing Gabriel. As chief executives of Nebadon, Gabriel is ex officio chairman of or observer at, most of the Salvington Conclaves. Now, what's a Salvington Conclave? Well, Salvington is the uh, the head, headquarters world of Nebadon, which is our local universe. And Salvington is where Michael of Nebadon resides. It's also where the divine spirit, uh, the third person of Trinity, as represented in the divine spirit, resides. And this is where all the planning and the administration and the mercy ministry occurs on the highest level of our local existence. And so when Gabriel goes to these Salvington conclaves, I guess it'd be kind of like, you know, you know, when one of our presidents goes to the UN World Council. It's, it's a big deal on the spiritual level. As chief executive of Nebadon, Gabriel is ex officio chairman of or observer at most of the Salvington conclaves, and as many as 1,000 of these are in 
often in session simultaneously. The brilliant evening stars represent Gabriel on these occasions. He cannot be in two places at the same time. And these super angels compensate for this limitation. They perform an analogous service for the core of the Trinity teacher sons, who are the first in line of the paradise teacher sons that go all the way down to uh, the faithful of days, the most highs. But the tr- Trinity teacher sons come from the central universe. They come from paradise. Though, though personally occupied with administrative duties, Gabriel maintains contact with all, our, all other phases of universe life and affairs through the brilliant evening stars. On such assignment, they have sometimes been known as the Angel of the Lord. They frequently go to Uversa. Uversa is the capital of our central universe, or our universe, uh, Orvington, one of the seven super universes. Uversa is the capital. And they represent the bright morning star before the courts and assemblies of the ancients of days. But they seldom journey beyond the confines of Orvington. So brilliant evening stars do their work in our super universe, one of seven, which is Orvington. And specifically, they are assigned to the local universes to assist. And you remember, there's a lot of different local universes. There's Ultimately, there will be, what, 700,000 of them? And every one of them will have someone who is like a Gabriel. And every one of those Gabriels will have at service to them these special personality beings known as brilliant evening stars. Now, according to the Arantia book, in Nebadon, which is our local universe, there are 13,641 of these brilliant evening stars. Now, of the 13,641, 4,832 were created. In other words, they were offspring of the creator Michael's son and the creative divine spirit. They actually have these, these spiritual children. And in this particular group, they created 4,832 of these brilliant evening stars to serve as assistants to the bright morning star Gabriel. But here's, here's the other part of this. Many of the brilliant evening stars are made up of ascended spirits. In fact, 8,809, according to the Urantia book, are ascended spirits who have attained the goal of exalted service. Many of these ascended evening stars started their universe careers as seraphim. Others have ascended from unrevealed levels of creature life. That's interesting, isn't it? What unrevealed levels are there of creature life other than human? As an attainment goal, this high core is never close to ascension candidates so long as a universe is not settled in light and life. So you or I could one day be a brilliant evening star if we, if we do our homework. Quote, both types of brilliant evening stars are easily visible to Marantia personalities, which is slightly above the human realm, and certain types of supermortal material beings, such as probably material sons, Adams and Eves, and perhaps uh, those like the Nodites, you know, Caligastia's 100s. Uh, which I hope I'm not going too fast. But essentially, these brilliant evening stars are visible to certain mortals, certain material beings, and most certainly, Marantia personalities. The created beings of this interesting and versatile order possess a spirit force which can be manifested independently of their personal presence. 
This may explain why sometimes people think that they see angels. These are a high order of spirit personalities who can reveal themselves. And they can also do so independently of being there in person. They can project their manifestation. And that could explain why many people see, you know, angels, if in fact it's that group of angels they're seeing. This is kind of interesting. Quote, the head of these super angels is Gavalia, the firstborn of this order in Nepodon. Since the return of Christ Michael from his triumphant bestowal on our world, Urantia, Gavalia has been assigned to the ascended mortal ministry. And for the last 1,900 years, his associate, Galantia, has maintained headquarters on Jerusalem, where he spends about half of his time. Galantia is the first of the ascendant super angels to attain the high estate. Galantia. Interesting name. No group or, or company organization of the brilliant evening stars exists other than their customary association in pairs on many assignments. They are not extensively assigned on missions pertaining to the ascendant career of mortals, but when thus commissioned, they never function alone. They always work in pairs, one a created being and the other an ascendant evening star. And you can read more on these fascinating groups of people. And we are also fortunate to have several sponsors of the Arantia Book Papers actually authored by brilliant evening stars, whose name we now know, at least in this case, is Gavelia. Several papers authored in Section 3 of the Urantia Book having to do with our early religious evolution are disclosed by a brilliant evening star who actually authored those papers. And if you read them, wow, do they know a lot about us. It's really quite amazing. We may even, yeah, we may even dip into a little bit of, of their writings. In fact, there are several papers written that tell the story of our early history and how religion evolved from uh, man's first appearance about a million years ago down to the times of the arrival of the prince and his staff 500,000 years ago. So they've been around for a long time. And they possess a knowledge few of their order possess, since they represent both Gabriel on the worlds of time and space. But they also, they also carry experiential wisdom to those worlds, which makes it possible for a brilliant evening star to narrate something like this. This is from the paper, I believe, I want to say, let me look here. Oh, don't have it. I think it's paper 89, perhaps. And it has to do with uh, the early religions of mankind. Primitive man viewed, and this is written by a brilliant evening star by the name of, well, I want to say it's Gavalia, but I'm not quite sure. But let's see what they write. Number five, the advancing ghost cult. Primitive man viewed the spirits and ghosts as having almost unlimited rights but no duties. The spirits were thought to regard man as having manifold duties but no rights. The spirits were believed to look down upon man as constantly falling and failing in the discharge of his spiritual duties. It was the general belief of mankind that ghosts levied a continuous tribute of service as the price of non-interference in human affairs and the least mischance was laid to ghost activity. Early humans were so afraid they might overlook some honor due to the gods that after they had sacrificed to all known spirits, they did another turn to unknown gods just to be thoroughly safe. 
and now the simple ghost cult is followed by the practices of the more advanced and relatively complex spirit ghost cult, the service and worship of the higher spirits as they evolved in man's primitive imaginations. Religious ceremonials must keep pace with the spirit evolution and progress. The expanded cult was but the art of the self-maintenance practiced in relation to a belief in supernatural beings, self-adjustment to spirit environment. Industrial and military organizations were adjustment to natural and social environments. And as marriage arose to meet the demands of bisexuality, so did religious organizations evolve in response to the belief in higher spirit forces and spirit beings. Religion represents man's adjustment to his illusions of the mystery of chance. Spirit fear and subsequent worship were adopted as insurance against misfortune, as prosperity policies. The savage visualizes the good spirits as going about their business, requiring little from human beings. It is the bad ghosts and spirits who must be kept in good humor. Accordingly, primitive peoples paid more attention to their malevolent ghosts than to their benign spirits. Human prosperity was supposed to be especially provocative of the envy of evil spirits, and their method of retaliation was to strike back through a human agency and by the technique of the evil eye. That phase of the cult, which had to do with spirit avoidance, was much concerned with the machinations of the evil eye. The fear of it became almost worldwide. Pretty women were veiled to protect them from the evil eye. Subsequently, many women who desired to be considered beautiful adopted this practice. Because of this fear of bad spirits, children were seldom allowed out after dark, and the early prayers always included the petition, Deliver us from the evil eye. The Koran contains a whole chapter devoted to the evil eye and magic spells, and the Jews fully believed in them. The whole phallic cult grew up as a defense against the evil eye. The organs of reproduction were thought to be the only fetish which could render it powerless. The evil eye gave origin to the first superstitions respecting prenatal markings of children, maternal impressions, and the cult was at one time well-nigh universal. I think of Edgar Allan Poe. Envy is a deep-seated human trait. Therefore did primitive man ascribe it to his early gods. And since man had once practiced deception upon the ghost, he, he soon began to deceive the spirits. Said he, quote, If the spirits are jealous of our beauty and prosperity, we will disfigure ourselves and speak lightly of our success. Early humility was not therefore debasement of ego, but rather an attempt to foil and deceive the envious spirits. The method adopted to prevent the spirits from becoming jealous of human prosperity was to heap vituperation upon some lucky or much-loved thing or person. For those who don't know what vituperation means, it means bitter and abusive language. Ah, that's where we get cussing from. The custom of depreciating complimentary remarks regarding oneself or family had its origin in this way, and it eventually evolved into civilized modesty, restraint, and courtesy. In keeping with the same motive, it became the fashion to look ugly. Beauty aroused the envy of spirits, 
It betokened sinful human pride. The savage sought for an ugly name. This feature of the cult was a great handicap to the advancement of art, and it long kept the world somber and ugly. Under the spirit cult, life was at best a gamble, the result of spirit control. One's future was not the result of effort, industry, or talent, except that they might be utilized to influence the spirits. The ceremonies of spirit propitiation constituted a heavy burden, rendering life tedious and virtually unendurable. From age to age and from generation to generation, race after race had sought to improve the superghost doctrine, but no generation has ever yet dared to wholly reject it. It's no wonder that there is such an antagonism towards religion. The whole cult was a scheme designed to placate, satisfy, and buy off the spirits through this disguised bribery. And thus there grew up a new and expanded world philosophy, consisting in one, duty, those things which must be done to keep the spirits favorably disposed or at least neutral, two, right, the correct conduct and ceremonies designed to uh, win the spirits actively to one's interest, and then number three, truth, the correct understanding of and attitude toward spirits and hence toward life and death. It was not merely out of curiosity that the ancients sought to know the future. They wanted to dodge ill luck. Divinations was simply an attempt to avoid trouble. During these times, dreams were regarded as prophetic, while everything out of the ordinary was considered an omen. And even today, the civilized races are cursed with the belief in signs, tokens, and superstitious remnants. Slow, very slow, is man to abandon these methods whereby he so gradually and painfully ascended the evolutionary scale of life. I want to share with you one other writing from a brilliant evening star, which what we've been talking about. And I want to move ahead to this one final, very moving paper that was written by Gabalia, which I can confirm. And I will read that, and it's paper 119. And this illustrates, I think, the, uh, the wide scope of knowledge and wisdom that these brilliant evening stars possess, these spirit personalities that work on behalf of Gabriel throughout the entire universe. So another paper I want to bring to your attention is this one from paper 119, which sets the stage for the next part of the Arantia book, which we know in part four is the life and teachings of Jesus. And listening to this angel of the Lord description of why Jesus, the Son of Man, bestowed himself upon this world. And it's probably the most, one of the most unique perspectives you will get on the bestowal son's mission, the mission of Christ. So here it is, the bestowals of Christ Michael. And this is just the introductory. It then goes on and walks us through the various other bestowals that Christ had prior to his final bestowal here on our world 2,000 years ago. It says, quote, Chief of the evening stars of Nebadon, I am assigned to Urantia by Gabriel on the mission of revealing the story of the seven bestowals of the universe sovereign Michael of Nebadon. And my name is Gabalia. This is one of the rare, by the way, I should mention in the Urantia book, very few times does in, do any of the authors actually give you their name. I mean, there's a, a, but few uh, exceptions. A couple of the Melchizedek's 
who wrote uh, Man- Manosha, I think, is one of them. But it's a it's an exception to the rule. They don't usually identify themselves. But in this particular paper, Gavalia clearly identifies himself as a brilliant evening sun. And we also know that Gavalia is chief of the evening stars, as he claims in this first paragraph. So he writes, the attribute of bestowal, well, let me continue what he, what he introduces himself as. Um, he says that, uh, I am assigned to Urantia to reveal the story of the seven bestowals of, of Michael. In making this presentation, I will adhere strictly to the limitations posed by my commission. And what does he mean by that? Well, when they were deciding on this Urantia revelation, and you get this from different parts of the book, uh, they say that there's, they have to be careful about too much revelation. They can't reveal things that we can learn through, earn knowledge down through time. So it's only it's only going to give us enough for us to have a conceptual understanding, but it's not going to give away the whole story. That's for us to learn as we ascend. That's the way I take it. So Gavalia writes, the attribute of bestowal is inherent in the paradise sons of the universal father. And their desire to come close to the life experiences of their subordinate living creatures, the various orders of the paradise sons are reflecting the divine nature of their paradise parents. The eternal son of the paradise trinity led the way in this practice, having seven times bestowed himself upon the seven circuits of Havona, the central universe, during the times of the ascension of Grand Fonda and the first of the pilgrims from time and space. So at about the time that the first ascendant former human was able to reach the central universe of Havona, and his name, by the way, was Grand Fonda, that uh, brought into action the, the eternal son, the second person of paradise, to begin the process of of conducting bestowals upon his creation. So that's a long time ago. Long time ago. And the Eternal Son continues to bestow himself upon the local universes of space in the persons of his representatives, the Michael and Avonal Sons. Quote, When the Eternal Son bestows a Creator Son upon a projected local universe, that Creator Son assumes full responsibility for the completion, control, and composure of that new universe, including the solemn oath to the eternal trinity, not to assume full sovereignty of the new creation until his seven creature bestowals shall have been successfully completed and certified by the ancients of days of the super-universe of jurisdiction." This obligation is is assumed by every Michael's son who volunteers to go out from paradise to engage in universe organization and creation. The purpose of these creature incarnations is to enable such creators to become wise, sympathetic, just, and understanding sovereigns. These divine sons are innately just, but they become understandingly merciful as a result of these successive bestowal experiences. They are naturally merciful, but these experiences make them merciful in new and additional ways. These bestowals are the last steps in their education and training for the sublime tasks of 
ruling the local universe in divine righteousness and by just judgment. The Michael Sons begin their work of universe organization with a full and just sympathy for the various orders of beings whom they have created. They have vast doors of mercy for all these differing creatures, even pity for those who err and flounder and the selfish mire of their own production. But such endowments of justice and righteousness will not suffice in the estimate of the ancients of days. These triune, uh, triune rulers of the super-universes will never certify a creator son as universe sovereign until he has really acquired the viewpoint of his own creatures by actual experience in the environment of their existence and as these very creatures themselves. In this way, such sons become intelligent and understanding rulers. They come to know the various groups over which they rule and exercise universe authority. By living experience, they possess themselves of practical mercy, fair judgment, and the patience born of experiential creature existence. And then finally it says, The local universe of Nebadon is now ruled by a creator son who has completed his service of bestowal. He reigns in just and merciful supremacy over all the vast realms of his evolving and perfecting universe. And that's explaining Michael of Nebadon. Michael made ready for his first bestowal adventure about the time Urantia was taking on its present form, one billion years ago. His bestowals have occurred about 150 million years apart, the last taking place on Urantia 1,900 years ago. I will now proceed to unfold the nature and character of these bestowals as fully as my commission permits. That's the end of Gavalia. And then he goes on and explains the six other bestowals that Christ Michael uh, experienced before finally coming here. And uh, boy, if that doesn't open up your mind and, and give you pause to consider, I, I, don't, I don't know what does. That's that's pretty fascinating. And then it'll, uh, you know, I'm sure that to the person who's not heard quite that explanation before, it's probably pretty mind blowing. So we'll just leave it at that. But brilliant evening stars are just a remarkable, just another example of not only the wonderful prose of the Arantia book, but a remarkable uh, display of of how beautiful and symmetrical this creation is, that you would have such beings who serve a specific purpose. And in this case, in our case, conveying to us the history of ourselves, because they have that knowledge. So, coming up in future episodes, I've got some great letters from listeners I want to share with you, perhaps in the next podcast. We try to drop one of these every week, sometimes two. Check back often and share these Urantia Book podcasts with fellow seekers of truth. Until next time, God bless, and thank you for joining me on the Urantia Radio Podcast.